All right, let's uh, let's move on here uh, to this part of calling the old switcheroo. Pretty easy one here. We're just going to change, in some cases, we're going to change the medium of something. And in other cases, we're going to change the genre of something. So, like, we're going to change a movie into a TV show and vice versa. Uh, we're going to change, uh, you know, a drama into a comedy and vice versa. And there's a little bit more to it than that. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it here. Chem, I guess we can kind of start anywhere unless you just want to go down the list. Yeah, you know, let's just uh, let's go down the list for sure. Okay. Definitely. Um, yeah. I, I will I will have you start this one off. Okay. So for the movie that should have been a TV show, and believe me, dude, I will actually defend Zack Snyder. We're talking about him again. I'll defend his Watchmen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of thought that he he basically got a, handed a really, I guess um, the best way to put it is just complicated project. Okay. With the, with the fan base with the length, with all the material, mm-hmm. the source material is just huge. And I kind of feel that this guy did the best that he could. But after seeing what Damon Lindelof did with Watchmen in a TV show form, the Watchmen movie should have been a TV show yes. all the way. It, it, it should have been 100%. And um, I don't know if you know about this, but did you know that they're, they actually were getting ready to shoot the Watchmen movie at a different time, and Ray Stevenson was Rorschach? And Jorah Mormont was Dan Dryberg. I don't know if you knew that or not, I but they no, actually. I did not. Hear, I did not know that. No. Yeah, there's test footage out there of of the scene where um, Rorschach comes into Dryberg's house and he's eating the beans and all yeah. that stuff. And there's test footage of of uh, Ian Glenn or Ian yeah, Glenn. Yeah, Ian Glenn. Yeah. Ian Glenn as a as Dan Dryberg and Ray Stevenson as um as Rorschach. So just had to put that out there because I, number one I, I had no idea about that and number two like just the way that going back to what I was saying earlier is that there's just too much going on in the Watchmen universe and in the book to really do it justice. You need a TV show. You need that time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to be one season or something that goes for five seasons, but you need something longer than what was even four hours with the director's cut and the ultimate edition. You just need more time than that. And when I went back and I reread the Watchmen graphic novel, like kind of as I was watching the, the show doing research for the, our upcoming Lindelof episode, when, whenever we do that, there is so much stuff that they just really like didn't even get into the original into the Zack Snyder movie. Um, even after rereading it, like I realized how much of a crime it was to get rid of that ending when with the squid monster and stuff and mm-hmm. kind of rewrite it with Dr. Manhattan and the difference. Okay. So I'll just basically make this one final point here. And when it comes to the squid monster in the book, it's developed really subtly. Okay. Like you're just kind of, you're following these artists and these writers who have disappeared and no one knows where they are, but we know where they are. And they're in this kind of like, they're on a boat or they're in um, Antarctica with Azumandaya. So you're getting like little bits of stuff to kind of give you the illusion that there is something going on outside of the Watchmen storyline. This would only work in television. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. work in a movie. Mm -hmm. And the way that they do it in the book, they, they, pepper it in so like if the book the the original Watchmen is 12 individual issues you're probably getting your first taste of this like in issue three then maybe you see people periodically issues like four five and six and then leading up towards the end you do get a little bit more and you kind of get more face time with these people even though it's not a whole lot and it's just perfect for television it wouldn't work with a movie and it would just feel out of place in a movie which is why they had to basically link the disaster at the end to one of the already existing watchmen and since dr manhattan is the most powerful 
it's conceivable that his power would be able to be weaponized in some way, shape, or form by Asimandias. So um, while Hollywood did sink their fingers into the graphic novel for the Zack Snyder movie, I feel if this was a show, there would be way more opportunity to stick to the source material and thus be a better product. I, I Yeah, 100% agree with you there. I, I just think in general, when we're unless you know that you have the, the capital and the time to make like a trilogy or you have the opportunity to do something like the Marvel cinematic universe that like banking on taking something that is expansive as a comic book and trying to smush it all into a movie is really fucking difficult. It is just so fucking difficult. And you know, like again, things that just like unfold over many issues in case of comic books and graphic novels in the case of, um, you know, like it's, it's hard to adapt TV shows to movies. You know, mm-hmm. even, even though you think like, oh, we can just do like this storyline. It's hard to do that because there's so much that happens in a TV show over the course right. of many weeks and years. It's just difficult. Yeah, dude, like there's people don't realize that. And like in order for you to like really like you're talking about the translating the TV show to a movie. OK, in order for you to really capture some of the essence of the TV show or the event that you're getting ready to translate into a movie and to have it be as effective there are just sometimes where those certain moments only work well on television, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be like the slow burn that they've been building for eight episodes or the one random thing that just kind of comes out of nowhere and thus changes the events of the entire series. Like these kinds of things, like, they don't translate well to the, the no. screen and everything strictly for t- because of time. Yeah, definitely exactly. because of time. Exactly. I'm with you on that one. Uh, I'm going a, I'm going well back to a, a similar point in time. And it, this is strictly the sequels here that I'm going to talk about, and that's the Matrix sequels. That this this should have been a TV show. Anything that anything that happened after the first movie should have been a TV show, because for me the promise of what the Matrix, the original Matrix movie, was, isn't like some hardened sci-fi war movie. It's more about the inner workings of the simulation. It's about how people how people who you know people who don't know they're in the simulation how their lives are are being you know manipulated by you know the the evil empire the evil computer um you know our nemesis if you will but also how the people who do know that they're in a simulation how how their lives work and then obviously the people outside of the simulation altogether who know you know everything that's going on how their lives work that to me that was like the promise of the matrix like that there is so much more behind the scenes that'd be worth exploring and instead, I don't mind the sequels, but they're very, they're very run-of-the-mill sci-fi action movies. Like they're they're not breaking visually; they're great, but they're not breaking any new ground in terms of what they're doing. I would have much rather see the Matrix, the anything Matrix-related, go to the small screen, and week to week explore various factions of the Resistance, explore what Zion, what life in Zion is like, explore like what exactly. How did we, you know, explore in depth, more in depth, how exactly we got to the point where the machines are using people as, uh, you know, essentially as fuel? Um, you know, we could have gotten, we could have gotten much more. You know, there's like that. I don't, did you ever see the Animatrix? I that immediately came into my mind when you had mentioned turning the Matrix into a TV show. Okay. I know all about that. You bet. Okay. So the Animatrix has has its little, you know, little anthology um, shorts, animated shorts. Um, you know, that take place within the world of the Matrix. Some of them are directly, um, you know, there's one that like tells the tale of like essentially how um, humans and and humans and the machines kind of came to war. 
There's another one with a character that is in the Matrix, that is in the sequels, um, is in one of the episodes. But there's a bunch of them that just take place within the idea of the Matrix. And all of these, to me, offer better opportunity to explore to explore life in this, in something that, like, the Wachowskis created that has literally no limit to where it can go. It could, you want an entire episode or entire season to be animated? Do it. You want an mm-hmm. entire episode to be um, a detective noir story? Do it. You want a war? You want a whole season where everyone's at war? Do it. You can do it because there's no limit to what the Matrix can be. Dude, I'm telling you, the differences between the Matrix number one and the Matrix two and three are like astronomical. You know what I'm saying? It could, mm-hmm. It's almost, and it's not anywhere near on this measure, but it's almost like the transition between the Evil Dead and like the Army of Darkness yes. to me, almost. Like you're yep. watching like two completely, like what Greg said from our Raid and Raid 2 episodes a couple of weeks ago. And I'm telling you, man. There is so much fucking room to explore this world and everything that the Wachowskis created. There's so many cool things within this world, even so much to like the random characters that just happen to be working at the restaurants that are within Mm -hmm. these worlds and stuff like that. And the fact that it is a computer simulation, whatever you want to call it, there's just basically like anything, almost anything can happen and it will still like fit the tone of the story. You know, like there could just be a random in this computer simulation, who knows? Maybe there is just like a meteor that hits the world and everybody's dealing with some shit or the machines are, uh, well, the machines wouldn't be in the computer simulation, would they? Or would they not no, be? No, that's, that's, the, that's the agents. Okay, 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 the agents. I got you. Yeah. You could even do more stuff with the agents. Absolutely. That's right. You could, you could dive into this mythos or whatever and these characters a little bit more and why they are doing what they're doing. And... We've talked about this on the show before, and the amount, the amount of missed opportunities or if you can even – whatever you want to call that when it comes to The Matrix 2 and 3, it's just like through the roof, dude. And by the time you get to the third one, which is supposed to be the grand finale, the big closer and stuff, it just – I don't know. I just feel like it doesn't hit. Like they don't even, they don't really recapture what they had done before. Sure. You might get like the one, like, cause the Oracle dies in the third one, right? Uh, well, no, she's there at the end of the third one. But like the act, the actually, the actress who played the original Oracle does die in between the first and the second one. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Like they're, so what I was going, what I was meaning to say with that is like you can still have like your just like the random characters, like the Oracle being the woman in her apartment yeah. who just happened to see the future, and the architect of the Matrix, which is just an amazing scene of Keanu with all the TV screens and stuff really like cool. that. Yeah. You know, you could have those kinds of things, but explore those people a little bit further, and maybe like. I guess reinstate some kind of credibility to like the original movie. And we could also, by having the matrix be a show, it's kind of one of these things where we can maybe like erase the second and third movie from history, kind of like the (laughs) way, the the way Batman forever and Batman and Robin are like, you can kind of erase those and be like, I know that there's, they're supposedly talking about making another matrix coming up here pretty soon. They are filming it. They are. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And is that going to, have any affiliation with two and three or is it just going to kind of be a direct sequel to the first one? I, I, that I do not know, but I mean, it's as far as I know, everyone that's involved in it is back. Everyone that's involved in the first, they are back. Okay. So the, where, where basically where I'm going with this is that the, one of the new trends that I see happening in Hollywood, we have it with the, the Halloween series that just happened. Yep. Are these like ignoring everything <laughs> yep. else? The, kind the, of things yeah the, the most recent terminator just basically tells you to ignore everything yes. after the second one exactly so i'm seeing that 
maybe kind of becoming something in Hollywood coming up here pretty soon. And the matrix would be like the matrix could be one of these things to restore credibility to the franchise by just making a direct sequel to the second one again, but yeah, it's different. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. How about, uh, how about a TV show that should have been a movie? Okay, dude. So this one right here, I don't know if you've ever seen this show. Um, there's a show on Netflix called the end of the fucking world. And it's a, it came out on Netflix in like 2017. And there was another season that happened a couple of years down the road. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever seen the show? Just, just I'm really quick. aware it's one of the serial killer kid. Exactly. Serial yeah. killer kid. Um, and actually like the premise is kind of cool. Like it's, it's this kid, he's, basically like a young serial killer and he's done killing animals and he's getting ready to, to, to make the next jump to a human being. And he picks this girl from his school and the two of them run away. And there's like this kind of like little moonrise kingdomy element of like two kids kind of being out there on their own and coming of age with a little bit of a love story. And for this guy who has no feelings whatsoever, which they establish in the first five minutes of the show where he dunks his hand in a deep fryer, this kid with no feelings starts to develop emotions for this, this girl and everything. Um, so this show, you will never be able to convince me otherwise, but I believe it was originally designed to be one season. And for some reason it just got popular and they decided to make another one. They actually, I feel wrote the, the, the first season. I haven't even seen the second one. I'm probably not going to watch it, but um, they wrote this the first season to be kind of complete. They give you a little mm-hmm. bit of a cliffhanger. You wonder what happens, but in all reality it's, it's complete. You know, I, I don't feel that they needed to really go any farther with these characters. But now that there is a second season out there, I feel that they should just put this whole thing into a movie. Okay, like they for as much as I enjoyed the first season, they really stretched some of the stuff out Mm -hmm. and they really worked. And they just like it's eight episodes long and like season or by episode four or something like that. You're kind of like, okay, so they're just in another situation that they're going to get out of whatever, blah, 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 blah. But by taking all this stuff and like taking some of the things that are in the show and just basically making them little snippets of stuff that happened in the movie. Like, for example, there's a, there's in a diner, they go to a diner and they run into this guy and turns out he's like a creepy pedophile dude. That could have been five minutes in the movie and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the scene in the, the show where they end up at a house that turns out to also have a serial killer as the guy who owns it and stuff. And that's actually the first guy that the uh, the lead character, James, ends up killing is this, the guy who owns this house. That could have been wrapped up in the first 30 minutes of the movie and then they're on to something else. You know what I'm saying? So this show um it's created by this guy named jonathan entwistle and he's actually doing this show with sophia lillis that's on right now called uh oh my god what the hell is this show called it is called uh i'm not okay with this i don't know if you've seen that show either uh, but... i feel like i've seen a trailer where she has like powers or something this is something yeah like i i haven't once again i, I like sophia lillis but I, yeah. I haven't seen the show um i'm not gonna lie like a, one of the highlights of the show was a uh, gemma whalen yara Greyjoy from mm-hmm. uh, game of thrones she was the detective on here but you're just it's one of these shows that like the story is so simple um, and it was actually at one point in time supposed to be a movie, but they decided to turn it into a show. And I just think that this would have worked a lot better as a movie, especially with horror and the way things are now and presenting horror and like different perspectives and telling different kinds of horror stories. This could have been a cool, just little 90 minute horror movie about a kid serial killer. So the end of the fucking world, this is a TV show that easily could have been a movie and should have been a movie. The, the concept sounds like an indie movie. 
100 percent. the concept sounds like an indie movie yeah i just watched um my friend Dahmer like not that long ago Mm -hmm. been kind of like just watching a bunch of movies and stuff and my friend Dahmer easily like end of the fucking world movie it it could easily be the same gotcha you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. if you Totally. So, um, so, so that's my selection. How about, uh, how about yours? Uh, I'm going with, and there's a very particular reason I'm going with this show, but I'm going with Homeland. Um, show that ended up running like fucking eight seasons, I think. Um, but for me, I don't, I don't know if you if you ended up watching that show or not, because uh, that that would be helpful. Have you seen it? Oh, I am familiar with Homeland, and I will tell you, I am familiar with seasons one through four thank you uh, yep after after that i had to cut the cord and showtime didn't have a streaming service at that time yeah. so i have not followed up with it um and i'm just i'll save some of my thoughts after after okay. after i hear what you're saying no this is quick because for me the reason why this should be a movie the the, the initial conceit of homeland is that uh, you know year what is it like eight years uh since his initial capture we, you know, you know, the United States finds a, um, you know, a POW in Iraq that, like, we didn't know about. That, like, really essentially should not be there. Um, and uh, once the, you know, once he is, you know, this CIA officer, this skeptical CIA officer um, kind of digs into, like, the situation, reveals that um, it's, you know, while, while the soldier, played by Damian Lewis, um, was in fact taken as a POW, um, his his tenure as a prisoner, it wasn't exactly what it seemed. He was really being indoctrinated and is going to be used as a weapon, um, against the United States, against the, you know, against the president of the United States was the original idea. Um, <clears throat> that concept is fucking awesome. I fucking mm-hmm. love it. It's, it's great. Um, they stretched that as far as they could stretch that, um, for yep. three seasons, uh, with Damien Lewis before they ended up uh, killing him off. They stretched that as far as they stretch it. And once, that is once that particular part of the story is done with homeland becomes a very run-of-the-mill i mean still interesting but a very run-of-the-mill sort of political thriller mm-hmm. and for me the and you know which is fine like that's good but the original idea had so much more punch behind it that it feels like this would have been a fucking hell of a two-hour two-hour you know political drama maybe if you wanted to you know stream this into a two-part movie you know two you know a, a, a part one and a part two of homeland but like I, I think they stretched the original conceit as far as they could, and the fact that it went on for like five more years after they'd killed off Damian Lewis blows my mind. Okay, dude, I'm in complete agreement with you on this. I am so surprised that they milked that as far as they did. Okay, like it is so surprising to me because I think Brody officially dies in the maybe the middle of season three or something, or towards yeah. like the end of season three, mm. and the first season of Homeland. You, it's almost untouchable. It is yep. so fucking so good. The best and TV ever. Dude, like the scene where he's in the bunker and, you know, is he going to push the button and blow everybody mm-hmm. up? Like that, that had me on edge just in so many ways. And then I remember in season two, scene, season two actually being very enjoyable as well. Not as good as the, the first one, but mm-hmm. I remember thinking it was okay. And then when season three rolls around and it's like, oh, wow, Brody, he's still a thing. And then, like, oh, he's still a thing for, like, you know, a couple of episodes. And, oh, my God. And then they, they finally kill him all. I was just – I couldn't believe that they got that much out of him the, and everything. A, a big part of that was because they were trying their best to get Damian Lewis uh, at least – I think he got nominated, but they were trying to give him a, a best, you know, Emmy win, or best actor Emmy win. Okay. Okay. Because I, you- I think he originally only signed up for one season. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that part I did not know. And – I, I mean, I can totally see the net, the network pushing for that or whatever, but mm-hmm. I just think that they they made the wrong decisions. And then after 
he was killed off, you're kind of just looking at like 24, but without Jack Bauer and right. without all the, you know, like, cause that's the, the same people who did it. I believe it's a couple Gideon, of the same people. Yeah. Yeah. Gideon, G- Gideon Raft or something. Gideon Raff and yeah. I forgot who else. Yeah. Howard, Gord- Howard Gordon, I think yeah. is the other guy. So like, that's kind of like what it became. And those shows are always going to have a place in the world for sure. like the political thriller and stuff like that. But some of the things that really made Homeland unique were just all reserved for like the first and second season and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I got to tell you, like Homeland is one of those ones where you know how you're really supposed to go balls to the wall, like in storytelling and they, they tell you to go as balls to the wall as yeah. humanly possible. That is just one where you went balls to the wall in the first season and you just, I, they never really got it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, and I almost think it's because they, without knowing it, they picked a route that can only go so far. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So, so exactly. that, that's my thoughts on it. But no. I agree with you all the way. Absolutely. All right. How about uh, this? We're going to switch up some genres here. How about a, uh, you know, I'll start this one off. A drama that should have been a comedy. And, and I, you know, that, I'm picking this, I went this route, obviously, because they are, you know, they are inverses of each other, though they do share a lot of commonalities. But drama that should have been a comedy I went with a TV show that, believe me, I could, I could do, I could just do a podcast on this TV show because it, it still intrigues me to this day for some good reasons and some bad reasons. Uh, Dexter should have been a comedy. <laughs> it, it is one of the most unbalanced shows, especially in its later seasons. Episode to episode, even inside the episodes, there are like tonal differences that just make they make no sense. Um, you know, you had episodes that were crushingly depressing. Uh, then you had episodes that were a little bit more funny. You know, we, we, you highlighted like characters like Masuka a little bit more or whatever. Um, and then you just had other episodes that were just odd. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's you know, you know Deb falling into an alcoholic funk um, because of like what she knows about her brother. I just was kind of like, I, I don't need to see any of this. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of intentional humor. Um, obviously, like you know, again, like the character of Masuka was supposed to be funny. Dexter is supposed to be funny in a way that is like to throw people off his scent right like he's right. supposed to be very kind of not like funny like laugh out loud funny but like politely funny so people don't know that he by the way he's a serial killer yeah um so there's humor in it anyway but there's a lot of unironic humor or, or a lot of ironic humor in it that i'm sure they did not mean to be there um like i'm just thinking about like harrison falling on the treadmill um that scene and like i laugh my ass off every fucking time mm. it happens i've <laughs> literally watched that clip just to brighten my day up. There's a lot of unintentional, ironic humor in it. So why not go full blown black comedy where <laughs> like, where like you get, you get maybe like the, you know, these, like these special, you know, like when you have like a Yvonne Strahovski or Ray Stevenson doing a guest appearance, why not have them be like just complete cartoon characters? And you know, then we, not only does like Dexter killing them feel interesting, like, but it almost feels funny that he's like eliminating some like bizarro character. I just think, I think it would have. I think I would think about the show much differently if it was a black comedy and it didn't try to be a very strict drama. So, once again, one of these things where like that would have definitely helped out the later seasons all, all the way for yeah. sure. Like, I mean, Dexter is another one of these prime examples where they really went all out in the first couple of seasons, which is why 
um, around the time that Jimmy Smith was on the show, season three. That's why they introduced the um, that season lead, you know, is uh, Smith's. Then it was yeah. Lithgow, Julia Stiles, Yvonne Strahovski, uh, Edward James almost and Colin Hanks and stuff yep. like that, going all the way down the line from like season three to the end of the show and stuff. And I feel that's once again, it's because they burned all this dramatic oil in like yep. the first couple of seasons that you really you're just kind of watching like the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. But by going the comedy route, especially like the dark comedy route where you're trying to make like light of this guy killing people and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know, but you could do it because he's got this code. The people that he are killing are killing are really God awful human beings. And Dexter is still like a loving father and stuff like that. So, and also like Michael C. Hall might be one of the only people to play that character and also, like, maybe have an additional, like, comedic chops. Like, he seemed to, like, by the time you got into, like, the seasons two and three, when he really started to become the character, mm-hmm. that's when, like, I think he he himself became more funny. So if you're able to kind of get that a little bit early on and sustain that through the duration of the show, it might be a better, way better um, uh, route to go instead of going the full-on drama, which just did not hit on that levels in the last three seasons. No, especially, especially the last season where... Like his choices, where Dexter's choices are just like almost inherently funny. Like it almost mm-hmm. feels like I'm like, wait a second, are they are they fucking with us right now? Did he, re- did <laughs> right. he really did he really drive his boat into a terrible CGI hurricane? Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 This feels like a black comedy. Yeah. Even like the whole like is are, are him and Deb gonna do it? They're not really related, you know. And Game of Thrones is really popular right that, now, and there's incest on TV. Whole, yes, that could have been a whole like uh, undercurrent. Under, you know, like a, a little sub story of like Deb falling in love with him. That would have been hysterical. Yeah. They could have done one episode where Dexter and Deb are on a date. Like they actually decide to see if they're able to like yes. be romantically involved. And the whole thing just goes to shit. You know, like he tries to hold her hand and it just feels weird. And like, you know, maybe they never actually kiss or something like that, you know, cause it's CB it's CBS or whatever, but uh, it'll be like some, you know, some kind of like awkward kind of things that show that they're never actually going to be able to be romantically involved. And they could have gotten a lot out of that. Yep. Absolutely. Dexter, man, I'm telling you, it should have been a black comedy. How about, how about you drama that should have been a comedy? Okay. So we talked about this earlier and mine is actually breaking bad. All I'm right. telling you, man, like, when I was originally pitched on the show, when I when it was basically told to me, hey, you want to watch the dad from Malcolm in the Middle cook meth? I actually thought it was a comedy, and then it took like obviously a couple minutes for me to Google that and realize I was wrong. But the general premise of Breaking Bad, you can oh, pump a lot of fucking humor oh, out yeah. of that dude. Yes. Just the chemistry teacher deciding to like cook meth and make money and stuff—that's that's pretty goddamn hysterical. And the way that they could pull it off in the show, so. You could basically, and I don't know how they would do this, but you basically take all the dark, methy stuff and replace it with light, methy stuff, if that's humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, I, and true. The, the way that you would do this is like you would take characters like Badger and stuff like that. You're mm-hmm. like, Badger's got the cool voice and he's kind of aloof and everything, and you, you kind of like that guy and stuff. You'd hang out with him, and you might even do meth with him, whatever you want. But it would be like, these characters are just lovable and everything, but they just happen to do meth, which I think would be kind of an interesting juxtaposition to see on screen. If all of a sudden like audiences were thought, uh, you know, like, uh, like red, the neighborhood meth guy is, um, is like lovable and like mm-hmm. really like a genuine person and stuff. And it might also give the opportunity to like, I guess show 
the the richer side of meth where it's not just these like scraggly you know like kind of like the generate skateboarder type weirdo guys who they could actually dive into like the rich lawyer guy who you know he just tried the murder case of his life it's friday night and yeah he's getting ready to do his weekly hit of meth (laughs) you know so there's there's just all like there's these things in there that if done right i think could be executed really well and really unique the problem is is that there is just such a cloud that hangs over meth that it's very very difficult to make meth light like cocaine it's not pot it's not weeds yeah exactly it's not pot it's not weeds it's not you could even to a certain degree like it would be a little bit easier but you could take coke and make coke very humorous and like make cocaine lifestyles in these characters that are basically characters caricatures of what you think cokeheads are so like everybody's all amped up you know or whatever it might be it might be a little bit easier but it's just so hard with meth being this dirty disgusting ass drug with all these connotations to it to pull something like this off yeah no i agree but i but i you know what especially the first couple of seasons there's a lot of dark humor sprinkled in into into the first couple seasons of breaking bad like a lot that mm-hmm. upon, you know, I've seen, I have watched through Breaking Bad entirely three different times now. And it, it, it is there in spades in the early seasons. Um, once we get, once, you know, once Walter White really becomes, totally becomes Heisenberg, a lot of that sort of humor is gone. Um, mm-hmm. And it really becomes, dep- I mean, obviously Jesse is a meth slave for like an entire yeah. season and a half. Um, you know, and, and like they kill, they kill his girlfriend. Like it's, it, once once the Nazis and those people show up, it becomes a totally the tone shifts. I mean, it, not in a bad way, but the tone shifts, and a lot of mm-hmm. the a lot of the black humor is just gone. Right, and even like the banter between Walt and Jesse that was so strong mm-hmm. in the first couple seasons, like when they're kind of trying to figure each other out, and yes. in the later seasons they obviously know each other, but the later seasons didn't have that kind of back and forth and right. like Walt kind of shitting on Jesse, but Jesse occasionally getting one up on Walt. Yep. So yeah, it's, I, I feel that there's definitely ripe for a lot of, a lot of comedy in, in breaking bad. If it was to be redone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, I will start off here. Chema, I want you to sort of guess what I'm talking about here. I, I, I wrote a synopsis and I want you to try to guess about the comedy that I'm going to turn into a drama. All right. Okay. Yep. All right. <clears throat> So, a talented athlete is a miserable alcoholic. The booze costs him his career, um, costs him his marriage, you know, friends, family. Basically, his whole life is shot because of because of alcohol, his addiction to the bottle. Like, he could have been something more, but he just never became it. Um, he sobers up and a means to, you know, as a means to make money and live life. But also, as a test to the strength of his sobriety, he buys and manages a bar. Along the way, he finds friends and foes that alternately help and or tempt his sobriety. What show am I talking about? It's, it's not The Replacements, is it? No. Huh. Oh, um, is it? Oh. Good. Okay. Uh, oh, shit. Because you're almost like describing Keanu Reeves, but there's no alcohol battling going on in that movie. If so I'm I'll, not I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Cheers. Go for it. Cheers. Oh, oh, that's right. Yep, that's right. Because Sam had the problems. He was a baseball Sam, had, guy, Sam right? was a big yep. time drunk. Especially, they yep. really touch on it in the first like three seasons. Like, like he meets, you know, his uh, he has coach was one of uh, one of his coaches when he was with the Red mm-hmm. Sox, who who's like the bar manager. And coach talks about like Sam Malone was like one of the best relief pitchers ever. Like, or he could have been, he could have been something more than what he was. And Sam always talks about like. He's like, I don't even remember pitching in New York on these days. And apparently, like, <laughs> I went three scoreless innings, and I don't remember it. 
Right. Yeah, I, I know that there are those kinds of jokes. And I think he makes a similar kind of jokes when he when he was the guest host on Frasier too. Like he's kind yep. of like, you know, I don't remember this. I'm such yep. a partier and stuff like exactly. that. Yeah. And knowing the kind of darker, I guess, like backstory behind Cheers that, um, you know, that, that, that they kind of touch on in a humorous way, it could have been really, really dramatic yeah. and stuff like that. And like he could fall in love with a woman who just happens to be a complete train wreck who's testing his sobriety, but he's also trying to like help her out at the same time and stuff. I mean, it could have gotten really, oh, yeah. really dark, especially, especially in Boston to be like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, yeah, there is, um, I like, I can almost envision the show kind of spanning like, the end of his career to like the beginning of like what we, you know, become to know as cheers. And like gotcha. that's that sort of in between, like really like when he's trying to get his life in order. Yeah. I understand, dude. I can see it. I can see that working for sure. Yeah. It's pretty interesting thought there. How about, uh, how about you? Okay. So mine, I'm actually sticking in similarly with athletics and stuff. And I am taking the 1991 movie necessary roughness and turning <laughs> nice. this whole thing into a drama. Nice. And now if you take away the slapsticky elements and the lines and mm -hmm. all this other stuff and samurai and all that stuff joining the team. This is a really serious movie, a school it that it get, it gets their athletic program gutted and on a scandal and everything. A, um, a new coach coming in, trying to rebuild this program honestly and with integrity and without and like playing by the rules and stuff like that. Then you have the, uh, the Scott Bakula character, the star quarterback whose dad got sick and he had to quit and run the farm. Like mm -hmm. that is just a fucking drama written all oh, over yeah. it and everything. Kathy Ireland's character struggling for acceptance in like a male dominated sport yep. being the first, being the first female kicker, like the only person that they could get because the program was gutted to death and stuff. Yep. And even like, and even like a guy, like you can kind of work in something dramatic for Sinbad where it's like, maybe it's a guy who, um, he had to quit playing football early to pursue academics and become a professor. And he has one year of eligibility left and there's a loophole in the system yep. and he straps up to relive his glory days <laughs> on the field. Like there's so much, there's just so much in there without even getting into like the actual events of the movie that necessary roughness is easily like a compelling sports drama easily. Oh, for sure. Dude, for sure. And again, that's why, like why I said like these are, there is so much overlap, even though they're very diametrically opposed, there's so much overlap in the ideas, um, you know, between comedy and drama that like you could, you could easily shade necessary roughness as a, as mm -hmm. a football, as a, um, a, the college version of Friday night lights. Yeah, definitely dude. Definitely. And you could, I'm telling you, even with just like with small, we're actually with adjusting the cast, like with making some adjustments to the cast, you really don't have to do that much work to rework this script either. No. You know what I'm saying? Like you're talking minimal changes, like minimal changes in the grand scheme of things. No, absolutely. I, I, I would agree with you. And I, I would watch that movie or TV show or whatever the hell you turn it into. I would definitely watch it. Yeah. And they, they could call it necessary roughness because the team has to be necessarily rough to get their status back or absolutely. whatever. You could do everything the same. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I love it. No, that's awesome. I, I think I feel like oddly enough, I feel like necessary roughness has popped up at various times when we talk about when we talk about movies. And I guess it has. I, I'm not really sure why, but like because it, it's not like it's a it's not like it's a great movie and it's not like it's one of those like so bad it's good movies. I have no maybe it's because it's one of those TNT movies that we've seen like a hundred times. Yeah. I think that's what it is too. It's just one of these movies that's been hammered in you so many times that you just have this certain like respect board and yeah. stuff like that, you know? And we do, dude, we talked about necessary roughness 
in many different capacities. Yeah, and I believe have. this is the only time that it's when we switch the genre. So we'll talk about it again at some point in time probably, for sure. Probably. <laughs> All right. I'll go into here uh, a sci-fi that should have been a fantasy. And obviously we're going to get fantasy that should have been sci-fi. The reason why I, these are not diametrically opposed. These are like sister genres. Um, you could go ahead and believe me, you could, this is actually easier. This is the easiest one that I had was were these were these two choices because i could easily pick something there are so many choices here that you could cross over one side or the other with some adjustments and nothing would mm -hmm. change so right one more time i want you to guess as to what movie i'm talking about here this is a movie okay <clears throat> a knight a sorceress a scholar and a monk are summoned to a kingdom to use their collective skills you know you know skills with weaponry magic uh magic slash science general like worldly knowledge and religion to defeat a powerful succubus that is trying to breed an army of demons in our world. Okay, like I know it's an ensemble movie, and I'm trying to think of like the, the specific character types. For some reason, Jumanji uh, is coming into my I, head. I will, but I I will know tell you that it's not a good movie, but it's it's okay. it's but it's kind of it's kind of good in a bad way. Is it like the A Team? No, I will. Okay. Uh, it, it is the 1995 not classic Species. Oh. <laughs> So God instead damn. of instead of the instead of the you know instead of like a team of scientists and a soldier and some new age spiritual guide we we just swap those in for what their equivalent would be in the fantasy world and instead of an alien it's a demon. Yep. Okay. I I'm totally picking up what you're putting down here and I remember species very very well. I was in love with Natasha Henstridge as a uh, as a kid. I mean, I'm sure who the was. fuck <laughs> wasn't? Yeah, I know. It's like I that movie. There's just so many images that are coming into my mind right now, and all of them are amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah and it's also a young Alfred Molina too in that movie. Young Michael Madsen as well. Yep. My God, that's young, really young cool. Marge, like, young Marge Helgenberger before she was on um, uh, what you call it? CSI. Wow. Jesus, God, dude. Yeah, that's a cool thing about some of these '90s movies, man. Is seeing where all these people came from. You know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all right. How about so, how about you? Sci-fi that should have been fantasy. Okay, so I'm in a similar area um, in the 90s sci-fi as well, okay? And I decided to go with Universal Soldier. Nice. Now, I remember this movie. I watched it over Mike Mormile's house one time, like staying over his parents' place on like a Friday or something. Mm -hmm. And, dude, this movie was awesome. Lundgren and Van Damme together as these oh, kind great. of rebooted super soldiers. Great. Fucking, fucking awesome, okay? So what I would do with this I would make it Universal Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Of course. And yeah, so what I'm basically doing is um, there is, and I just kind of wrote this like little stupid kind of tentative synopsis is um, we have the kingdom of the United States. They're on the verge of fighting a, a war with like the houses of Asia or some other country mm -hmm. or something like that. And America is realizing that they're completely outnumbered. They're, this is going to be a really difficult war. So they had their sorcerers, you know, basically reanimate a bunch of the most legendary soldiers of the kingdom and stuff. Now, so here's where I thought of how to have a good and bad like soldier, kind of how Van Damme and Lundgren were. So obviously this is a big job, reanimating all these soldiers. Mm -hmm. So they need more than one wizard guy yes. to do it. Okay. Yep. So they have two wizards. One of the wizards is like kind at heart and he's a good guy. He reanimates what would be like the Van Damme Van character. Damme character. Yep. 
And then there's an evil wizard who's like, you know, maybe like Jafar or something like that, who reanimates like what would be the Dolph Lundgren character and his bad universal soldiers. And they are, you know, dressed in armor and they got horses and stuff like that. And they, you know, got super strength and maybe can heal quick, kind of like similar capabilities that uh, Van Damme and Lundgren had. And then they battle it out in a medieval fantasy type land. And, you know, maybe maybe whoever wins that's who fights in the war or some shit like that. You know, maybe there is no war, whatever it is, but universal soldier, I thought would translate nicely from the dark gritty military sci-fi to a darker gritty medieval fantasy type story. I, I love it. I, I would, I would 100% watch that show. 100%. Dude, it's, they touch it in Game of Thrones with Kyburn bringing back right. the the mountain and stuff like yep. that. So like these themes of reanimation are definitely prevalent in um in like in fantasy and stuff like oh, that. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's you know like that's like when you in terms of like fantasy stuff, that's when you veer into like the dark arts, like stuff mm-hmm. that you're not supposed to be doing is like bringing people back from the dead. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, All right. So what is your what's your fantasy that should be sci-fi i'm interested to hear what yours so is on this. i went with i went with what is essentially modern fantasy uh, i'm not gonna make a guess at this one because the, the explanation is a little bit long but i went with uh with a modern fantasy movie uh that i, I don't know like i don't it, it actually stars someone that we just we talked about earlier it stars clancy brown i'm talking about the highlander um with clancy brown and christopher lambert mm. modern fantasy that takes place uh, in the 1980s super shitty 1980s new york um i i it's interesting because they actually tried in the sequel to this Highlander Two: The Quickening, they actually did try to put a sci-fi spin on it, um, and then which we'll talk about here in a minute. And then in the third movie, this the third movie actually did what what you were talking about before. What modern what more modern sequels are trying to do? They just pretend like the second one doesn't exist, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. So anyway, yeah. <clears throat> the Highlander here, I pictured uh, as, as this. Um, there's an interstellar war between two distant empires, right? Like in, in a, in a, in a quadrant of the galaxy that's so far away from us, we can't see anything. We, we don't know they exist. They definitely don't know that we exist. It's being fought by two vastly advanced humanoid species. Uh, one of which comes from a very inhospitable planet, which is, this is important. Um, they're also genetic, you know, the soldiers fighting are also genetically enhanced and technologically enhanced. I mean, they're like the definition of super soldiers. They're almost indestructible. Um, when one side wins, the remaining soldiers from the other side scatter across the stars, scatter across the universe, and they're now galactic refugees being hunted by, you know, the victorious empire. One of those, um, lands on a distant backwater planet that's basically unknown to the advanced species in most of the universe, and of course that's Earth. Um, because of the genetic enhancements, because of this soldier's genetic enhancements, the technology that's embedded in his body, and, like, the upbringing on this planet that was very brutal and very difficult to survive on earth's relatively calm atmosphere, calm conditions. Um, they are basically indestructible. They are invincible people basically here on earth. Um, which is good because the empire is sending bounty hunters and assassins to find them and literally collect their head. That's why we're going to decapitate people. Dude, I'm telling you, man, that you wrote in the decapitation good on that. And like, I, I'm, I wish I was more familiar with Highlander. I'll tell you that Highlander was the one thing Jason Wood used to love. Like Jason would love Highlander. Yeah. I never quite under, I never quite understood it and it's, stuff, but I, I enjoy it, but it is definitely like, it's one of those, like, I would say like, watch it because there's, there's not many things like it. 
Okay. I gotcha. Okay. And dude, I'm telling you, like I can appreciate any type of, any type of um, rendition of something older that you're going to put out there. So I'm not going to lie. I would check, I would check that out easily. Absolutely. How about you? Okay, so this one right here, this one was the one I actually kind of struggled with the most, and this was the the one that I is going to be the quickest one here. Um, number one, I realized I don't really watch that much fantasy. I, I thought I, I was a bigger fantasy guy, like I guess growing up, and turns mm-hmm. out like I totally went over my head. So the one piece of fantasy from my youth that I do kind of hold with me to a certain degree is uh, there's these series of books by an author named Brian Jacques. And he has these series called the Redwall series. And I read the first two books when I was younger. It's called Redwall. And the second book is called Mossflower. And what this is, this is a medieval knights and kings and queens and all that stuff. But the characters are animals. So they're like Mm. mice and hawks and owls and all that shit, right? So in my mind, I have just a vision of a whole bunch of like mice decked out like Rocket Raccoon that are kind that are just basically on like a whole other planet and it's it's not medieval but it's like you know maybe like really like sleek looking structures and stuff almost mm-hmm. like the way wakanda would look like very future and neo yeah, yeah. like kind of looking structures and believe me like moss flower and redwall these books are these books are great you know it works just as well in a medieval setting but with guardians of the galaxy and i'm kind of imagining these animals with like cool exoskeletons and like really sweet kind of like mouse specific vehicles that only they could drive and also like being that they're mice these big slick structures are only like eight feet tall in real life or something like that Mm -hmm. but they look massive because they're mice so that was like that was a little bit difficult for me because i realized i just i'm not as much of a fantasy guy outside of thrones as i thought as i thought i was but um if you even heard of those books i would i would be surprised i don't know really haven't i never have i just i just googled it while you're while you're explaining there I had never heard of that before. Yeah, they're so dude, like, and that's just a testament to like what fantasy literature is. This is just a blip, like a small drop in the actual bucket of like what is out there in fantasy oh my and God, stuff. It's and nuts. it's nuts. And, man, like there's shit out there that like I like take this wheel of time thing, for example, that they've been trying to turn into something now for a couple of years. The premise of this sounds absolutely fucking awesome. This is a really, really popular book. This book's insanely popular. I had never heard of it prior to um, reading Game of Thrones and right. stuff. So there's all this shit out there that's just – it's insanely popular, but I know – it's like one of those cultural blind spots, I guess, like we had talked about in one of our way I, early episodes together. I, it's a cultural blind spot, but also like that – it is so – fantasy stuff can get so nerdy that like it is a – it's not just a blind spot. It's like a turnoff to a lot of people. So like I gotcha. I, I have – um, I had a professor at Bowling Green – who, um, J- professor, he was hilarious. He, he taught like this, like classics and like mythology, um, James Funstein. And he, he looks like a professor, like a mm-hmm. stereotypical professor. That's what he looks like. Um, but he, he is a fantasy writer and he's like a fairly prolific fantasy writer named James Eng. It goes by James Eng, okay. E-N-G. And like, he's like this big hit every year at like Dragon Con, um, like, which I think is, I think it's down in Atlanta maybe. But like, I, like he has all these i've never heard of him before never i had like i didn't know like it wasn't until like the you know he like he told us that he like, was a fantasy writer um like at the beginning of class and then like i just happened to google him and like he has like he has like books left and right he collaborates on stuff he's got like he runs like all this like he runs like a or he used to run like a blog like on some like big fa- some like big fantasy website hub kind of deal mm-hmm. just totally beyond me i have no fucking clue yeah it's dude it's amazing man like 
there are people that um like that I can go and have a conversation with. Like one of my buddies from Louisville, he's a big fan of the series called The King Killer Chronicles, which is yes, yeah. supposed to be like one of the next the next next Game of Thrones, whatever yeah. that we we ever we get that. And like he's really big into it. He's got friends that are into it. I've met him and stuff. They love this. They they know all the details and everything. And like I Wikipedia this book, it's insanely popular, sold millions of copies. This guy Patrick Rothfuss is known all over the place. Never heard of any of this yet. And I'm like, <laughs> nuts. And I'm like, how is the, how have I missed this? Like, like I, I consider myself somewhat attuned into pop culture, but for me to like miss out and not even have any knowledge of some of this fantasy shit. I mean, it just shows you that like they're that number one, that pop culture is huge. And number yeah. two, I'm not, I guess I'm not as attuned to certain elements of it as I maybe thought I was. I, I would, I would agree with you there. Absolutely. All right. Now let's get into one of the final parts here. I'm calling chopped and screwed. Uh, we're gonna take uh, we're gonna take some songs we're gonna take some stories excuse me from songs and albums etc uh, and turn them into visual media we're gonna do we're gonna do a movie a TV show a play and a comic book we won't get too in depth with everything that we're doing here but we are gonna give a little explainer for like why we think it would be why what we're picking would be good for one of these things and Chema if you are if Chema you and everyone else out there are you are you familiar with the term chopped and screwed okay I am familiar with it I've, I've just in the, the fact that I could assume what it means is just like assembling something together. But if there's a specific like classification for the term, like as in it's applied to a specific field, I am unaware of that. It It is, it is specific to the style of Houston rap. Really? Chopped and screwed. Yep. That's uh, about speed, you know, taking certain parts, slowing down certain beats, um, speeding up certain parts. That's apparently called chopping and screwing. I had no idea, and knowing from what I know about Mike Jones, I can kind of see about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, my only Houston rap sample size. So check, like, you know, obviously uh, Mike Jones, but also uh, Chameleon Air, UGK, Paul Wall, um, Toby Nwigwe. Like those guys, all like they are chopping and screw. They are chopping and screwing practitioners. That's that's exactly what they're doing in their music. I did listen to that Toby Nwigwe album this week while working out, and it is absolutely fantastic. Good, really the, good. The one from the one from last year. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. All right. Uh, anyway, chopped and screwed here. Uh, Chuba, why don't you start start me off with uh, with your movie? Obviously, this could come from a single song or an entire album, whatever. Go ahead and go ahead and lay it out there for me. Okay, dude. So this one, man, this one brings a lot to my heart right here. I think this has been the only opportunity I've ever actually had to mention this on the podcast. And if I have, I do apologize. But in 2011, Adam Chemielewski fell in love with this album by a Canadian band called Fucked Up. And their album is called David Comes to Life. Mm -hmm. This album is absolutely incredible. It's a, it's a great workout album. It's I think it's over an hour long, dude. And it's like the genre that... I don't really know how else to describe it other than epic punk rock. Um, it's it's in the vein of punk, but it offers a little bit more than like what you think of the Ramones or it's and it's not that like emo -y kind of stuff. This is like this line of hardcore and punk and alternative and other kinds of music that all put together in such a great way. So this album is like it's something that is so important to me. And it's also a concept album basically to give you the story, like even I'm still like a little light on this, but if you've ever seen the movie stranger than fiction with Will Ferrell, mm -hmm. it's similar to that where it's, there's a character in his life and there is a narrator who is also narrating events in this character's life, who is also in the same world. Okay. Mm, okay. Now, 
So like, um, I, I think I can't remember her name. I think it might be Emma Thompson or something like that. Who is the Emma writer and narrator stri- in that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So like, whereas almost like the narrator is at times even typing a story and you're seeing the events that they're typing happen to the, the person that the main story is about. And this story is about this guy named David who falls in love with this woman named Veronica, who is like a protester protesting like a worker's wages or something like that at a light bulb factory that David works at. He becomes enamored with Veronica and the two of them decide to build a bomb and blow up the light bulb factory. And they do it. And in the process, Veronica is killed, which sends David into a major depression cycle where he starts to like question all these things about his own life and like if life is worthwhile and all this other kind of stuff. And he um, eventually encounters this narrator who is named Octavio. They have a little bit of a skirmish. And in the end, like basically David realizes that life is worthwhile and returns to work and tries to find happiness again. So it's, it, there's definitely some like emo punk roots in the story and stuff, but in no way, shape or form is it emotionally driven punk rock. And I tried to turn this into a movie in so many ways, dude. I actually worked on this. I spent nights like Saturday nights, like drinking and listening to this and trying to figure out a way to tell the story mm-hmm. and, I tried, dude. I really tried. <laughs> Unfortunately, the the better of the story all takes place in like the first act. And there's gotcha. four different acts in this play. And I'm such a sucker for I want to stay true to source material as much as humanly possible if I was to ever adapt something or adapt something. And this was one of these ones where I couldn't do it without interjecting too much of myself into a world where I didn't belong. And it kind of got me. And in the end, like the end is just basically like, yeah, I'm going to go to work again, you know, and, and even this conversation that David has with the, the villain Octavio, like Octavio never sees any justice for his actions of killing Veronica, who because he wrote in the bomb explosion and stuff like that. And the story is all meta and all that shit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love it. I'm going to cut myself off from a tangent. It would be the one album that if I ever could, I would turn it into a movie. I still, in some ways I keep going back to this project and maybe one day it'll happen. My whole goal, believe it or not, dude, I was going to write this script. I was going to go see fucked up at the Beachland ballroom in Cleveland when they played. And I was just going to throw the script on screen and if they, on the stage. And if, and if they, and if they wanted it, it could become something if not uh, totally something else, but that was my plan didn't necessarily follow through with it and um like i would love to revisit this again like after i myself have it's kind of like lebron going to miami to like learn how to win like i kind of need to learn how to do other stuff before i attempt a story of this magnitude because i kid you not man like what i did have written down was absolutely beautiful and i just i would love to revisit it at some point in time so that's mine fucked up david comes to life that's pretty that's pretty fucking awesome man i had no idea and i i love that yeah, I have to imagine that adapting adapting albums and songs to to like a narrative format, it, there just has to be huge gaps. There have to be huge yeah. gaps because like you can only write so many songs in an album, you know. That, right. that, and they the only so many words and so many explanations for what's going on. Yeah, you at some point in time, like as every single writer does, you always interject yourself into the story in some way, shape, or form. Yes. But this is like this is like me where I, I don't belong here. You know, Adam Chemielewski, his thoughts and stuff like that. Like I don't belong in this for the majority. 
I could piece and scrap together certain parts of it, but there's just not enough in the research that I did to put something cohesive together. And it's just, it kills yeah. me, man. Cause I really, I had so much fun getting loaded on Saturday nights and trying to figure this shit out. You. And I had, I had the thing on album, the, the vinyl with like this, you open it up and there's this big poster with all the lyrics on it. And I'm sitting there breaking shit down and stuff. And I even gave like the notes to one of my friends and I'm just like, here, am I making any sense? And he never even addressed this with me. And so I'm guessing a lot of it was just drunken ranting. So, <laughs> but, but, but that, but that's mine. What, 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 what would yours be? Well, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to take us on a trip to dystopian 2022 America, uh, really the world. And this album, this album can serve as both the soundtrack and the score probably. And I okay. really didn't realize how heavy it was with, its prediction of what's going to come come to pass soon, although the the title of the of the album should give you some idea about that. It's uh, Year Zero by Nine Inch Nails. Um, year Zero is like year in terms of politics and government building and nation building. Year Zero and Year One are like very common terms for like what you know, like what the Third Reich wanted to do to the world mm -hmm. when it started. It was going to be Year Zero, and that's it's it's sort of. Uh, it's it's definitely like an authoritarian term for how right. governments envision their you know their future going forward is year zero. So the title of the album should give you that that sort of um, that sort of vibe anyway. But here is literally with minimal with minimal um, interjection on my part. Here's what year zero the album is about. It's dystopian twenty twenty two, following nine eleven and the passage of the Patriot Act and Patriot Patriot two. American government agencies are given unprecedented access to investigate and persecute their own people. Um, following the re-election of George W. Bush in 2004, a spate of bioterror attacks against America and other nations rock the world. Um, it's questioned that if the American government is in fact the perpetrators of these bioterror attacks, uh, sort of as a way to just um, you know consolidate more power. In the mid-2010s, the U.S. engages in nuclear war with Iran, um, effectively spoiling the Middle East and spoiling, uh, spoiling North America. The dire state of the world leads to the rise of a new government agency called the Bureau of Morality that is immediately granted powers over both the legislature and the military in an attempt to bring, out, bring about order. Under their rule, civil liberties are systematically wiped away. As the world completely collapses, in place of sovereign nations, the oppressive stratocracy, which is a military-run uh, military uh, government, um, and, 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 excuse me, and so in place of uh, sovereign nations, the oppressive stratocracy of the Bureau now rules the world. Yep. And I'm telling you, while you're listening to that album, you could almost yep. hear all of that stuff. And I'm, this one, one should have been the one that I guessed at because I knew you were going with this the minute you said 2022 and everything. I, I love Year Zero. Yep, so Year Zero has an incredible remix album too to it as well. If you mm -hmm. ever get the opportunity, it's on Spotify. And I remember when this came out, there was so much, so much mythology behind this album because immediately when it got released, HBO tried to develop a show yes. centered yep. around year zero with Trent Reznor. Um, the, I don't know if you knew this, but the CD itself, when you, Put the CD into the CD player. It's black, and when it comes out, it's white because it uses heat changing paint on the CD. I to did not like, know that. I never owned the CD. I, this is one of those things. Like this is like one of the. When did this come out? Two thousand six, two thousand seven. Two thousand six. Two thousand six. This is like one of the first things that like I in terms of like wanting physical media. I just ended up streaming this. I never owned this one. I got you. This was one that like because I remember um, Nine Inch Nails. They had with teeth. You know, like a couple yeah. years prior to yeah. this. And I thought With Teeth was kind of like the radio album and everything. And correct. Year Zero was supposed to be the return to like the real yes, Nine Inch Nails correct. and everything. 
And man, when you open up the album art, there's uh, it takes the, the album art, the CD pages, like these two pages. One is like all super dystopian and the other one is like a suburbia type image and everything like these cool kind of juxtaposition of suburbia mm. and heavy industry and everything. Mm-hmm. And there was this whole, like I said, mythology surrounding the album and this cool concept album. And that's like year zero even though there hasn't been too many Nine Inch Nails albums that have followed it, I think there's only been one or two, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, there's been three of them. Year Zero is the best of the post-fragile Nine Inch Nails, easily. I, I would agree with that. I, I love this album very, very much. Yeah, and it, it, it's one of these albums that, like, I I, probably, I know I've listened to it in the last, like, it's on my iPhone, like, in my actual, like, I put the CD, like, onto my phone, mm-hmm. and um, I've listened to it, like, within the last, like, six months or something, working out, dude, it still holds up. You listen to Capital G, that song still fucking yep. crushes, awesome. like, yep. it's it's a phenomenal recording. It's, it's almost like Trent Reznor is, in fact, a genius. Yeah, this is the, yeah, <laughs> he this is. is the one, yeah. This is like the album where you definitely you you get to feel that before yep. you know like retrospectively like and I, I listened to the downward spiral yesterday believe it or not when I was working out and like when you listen to the downward spiral like after whatever it's been thirty something years mm-hmm. you're like wow dude real fucking genius but I think as far as like embracing this genius it, in like a, yeah. in real time year, year zero was that hundred percent. Uh, how about uh, how about a TV show that you'd make out of uh, be it a song or album or whatever. Okay, so this one I'm particularly proud of for this one. The Joker by Steve Miller Band Ooh. is the great is the greatest idea for a TV show, hands down. You get so much about this character in that song that you could then turn into a TV show. So let's just so like take this for example. Okay, so right now the, the character just at, with the song in general, mm-hmm. he's a cowboy, he's a gangster of yep. love. He's occasionally referred to as Maurice, who's a picker, grinner, lover, and sinner. And for some reason, he I feel like he would just fit perfectly into The Leftovers. I don't know why I wrote that down. I'm just like, I can see this guy being like an offshoot sure, character sure. in The Leftovers. <laughs> but um, so it's already this well-rounded character. Now, let's just think of some of the other things in the song that could be episodes. So um, he talks at midnight. What if he gets caught? You know, um, if he doesn't, he doesn't want to hurt no one. But what if he does? He plays his music in the sun. What if it rains? And uh, he gets his loving on the run. But what if he has a kid that he never knew about while getting this loving on the run? So there's all these little things that I feel I could take something and turn it into a show. And I'm no joke. I'm seeing I'm seeing Danny McBride like in this oh, in this character. 100%. But like I'm also but for some reason, I'm not seeing it on HBO. I'm seeing it on Fox for some reason. Like it's like a Fox Wednesday night TV mm-hmm. sitcom where Danny McBride says no curse words whatsoever. And it's still working. I don't know why. It just all seems to come together in my mind. But that's that's what I got. The Steve Miller Band's The Joker, great TV show. I love that. That sounds fucking fantastic. Yeah, there. Yeah, I really I forgot how much of an info dump that song actually is. Yeah, you get a lot about the guy. <laughs> you really do. Oh man, that's fucking fantastic. I love that. All right, I'm, I'm, I went with a more recent album. By recent, I mean within the last like, couple weeks. Um, I'm going with um, I, I'm going with the concept that is laid out in, in a few songs of the album. Um, in particular, Yankee and the Brave, right? That's yeah. literally what I'm going to title this TV show, Yankee and the Brave. Um, I'm going to use I'm going to use some of the the exposition that they give in the song. I think it's Radiation at the very the last track. Oh, where it's just the guy's voice, like there are two guys yes. going down yep. the wind. Yeah. So yep. I'm going to take yep. that idea and kind of stretch it even further, um, and I'm I'm going to be very literal with Yankee and the Brave here. Okay. So this is the story of a black New York City detective 
forced to work with a Native American reservation officer who travels from Oklahoma to New York City to follow a lead about who killed his brother in a drug deal gone bad on the reservation. So it's very Beverly Hills Cop in that way, right? Yep. Gotcha. Um, once, once they're there and they're kind of investigating the, the whole story and you know, trying to figure out what's going on, they clearly get too close to you know, whatever the real answer is, and they're framed for murder. So now they have to go week to week. Now they're they're on the they're on the run cross country, um, following the next lead to you know wherever this path takes them, and the path inevitably takes them uh, to different as as they un- unravel the mystery, the the path takes them to through all sorts of like cabal like terrible cabals of the white nationalist movement, and mm-hmm. these two this black guy and this Native American. Um, who have clearly been wronged by uh, by the white nationalist movement over you know the last several hundred years in America, um, just week to week as they solve crimes, they just fucking beat the shit out of and shoot up um, neo Nazis, alt right movements, the Proud Boys, the fucking um, I, I forgot like the what there's some other like whatever there's some other racist groups. Week to week, they're just infiltrating these places and beating the fuck out of them. Dude, that would be like if Tarantino was ever going to do a show, this would be the show that he would do and stuff like just these guys because I can see it. I could actually see like the, the detective and this Native American guy going around fucking shit up and like maybe the Native American guy fights in like a really, really cool way. You know, like maybe oh, he like um, it, it's martial I'll, arts or something I, like, real really quickly, out there. I'll fill it in. Like I, I vision this as like a 1970s style like black exploitation film. Like, yeah. So the, the black detective is real black. Like huge mm-hmm. afro, he just he's real black. The Native American uh, police officer, he's gonna fucking bust a tomahawk on people, and it's like yeah. it's totally to like make fun of these tropes, and then like deconst- you know make fun of and deconstruct those racist tropes, and then also mm-hmm. like make fun of like racists for being fucking racist. That's dude. The fact that he would actually have the tomahawk out there, like, and it would be like this tomahawk that's like all sacred to him, like oh, he's yeah, handed exactly. down from generations to generations. Like, yeah, that that they, I could see, I honestly could see that, especially as an, in the exploitation format, that would just work so well. Yep, and then of course the entire soundtrack's got to be provided by RTJ. Oh yeah, oh that new album is fucking awesome. amazing, dude. Awesome. Like the, that song "Walking in the Snow." Oh, that's, that is that, a, that's your protest anthem of the of the of the yep. decade, probably. <laughs> Yep, that songs like that only come out like every ten years or so, like and maybe even longer. Like when it comes to rap, like that is like a Brenda has a baby type show, mm-hmm. song where, for rap and the the pictures that are painted through words in hip hop, that is just like some shit that like hits you. You oh, know yeah. what I'm saying? Oh, like dude, you're yeah. just like, Phew. if you don't feel anything after walking, listening to Walking in the Snow, like you probably should have your shit reevaluated as a human being because oh. that shit is oh. impactful <laughs> Thank, sorry hold on I, and i skipped a point here i actually took a part of that the 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 the, the big overarching sort of agency that they're fighting is called snow the sovereign okay. nation of whites oh <laughs> that's good stuff too there you go <laughs> that's really good stuff too yeah <laughs> all right how about this this was a tough one for me but it, it was it, tough in that like it I'll, I'll, I'll let you go ahead first, and I'll explain why I had a little bit of a tough time for this. But um, what about a play that you would, you know, how, how what what song or album or whatever would you take and make into a play? Okay, so the play that I'm going with, um, it's by the, the Flaming Lips. It's this this album called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. It came Good out choice. in 2002. Good choice. Okay, there's something about this working with a play. Like I cannot get this image out of my mind, and I could be 
I could be wrong when I say that somebody may have already tried to turn this into a play because I know American Idiot is, is actually a very successful Broadway play. And there's something about Yoshimi is, is striking a chord that somebody may have tried to do this. Now, the reason that I feel that this works so well as a play is like the Flaming Lips are definitely they're a live band. OK, mm-hmm. like when it comes to their studio stuff, even though they somehow released a, a song within the last couple months, that's really good. And their last album is actually not too bad, even though it's technically a soundtrack for something which is escaping me right now. But they don't make the kind of quality albums that they used to make. Yoshimi is kind of the second to last hurrah of the, this really amazing run that the Flaming Lips had from about the mid 90s with uh, the release of Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. All the or actually even probably a little bit further than that with the Clouds Taste Metallic, all the way to 2006 with the War with the Mystics. And mm-hmm. in this period of time, this is some of the best like experimental indie rock that you could find. Yoshimi is a, definitely like a culmination and an evolution of the band as to where they're going. But for the most part, they've stopped really making good studio albums. Now it's more of a live thing. So that's why I'm seeing this as, as a play and not necessarily a movie. Like mm-hmm. you actually want audiences to be in the theater. They could shoot confetti from like different like confetti shooters there could actually be like giant pink robots that come out on the, the stage that are like basically like they move the way stage props do and you maybe actually see guys with like these long kind of pieces of wood moving arms and trying to make it look uh, intimidating and everything and also like the story itself is very simple it's just about this this japanese woman named yoshimi battling pink robots and the uh the inspiration from the character came by uh, came from this band of um a japanese band called the boredoms and uh, the the drummer is named Yoshimi P. Wee, so the letter P hyphen mm-hmm. W E, who honestly, dude, like while they were recording with the Flaming Lips, is just like, wow, that sounds sound like somebody's battling something. And then they literally built a whole concept album off of this, <laughs> even though um, Wayne Coyne, the lead singer, has acknowledged that Yoshimi the battles the robots the album isn't necessarily a concept album and i kind of agree with this because the story of yoshimi is only really told through the first four songs which are flight test yoshimi battles the pink robots one and two and the song called one more robot but i do feel that there is enough there there's enough foundation for anybody to take this and put a little simple one hour where this Japanese woman is being threatened by big robots and the, the country she whatever she's representing is threatened by the robots she's got to fight them she fights him, kills him, and that's the end. So that that would be my play for um for for taking an album and turning it into a play. I, I like that. That's a really good choice. That's a very good. Cho- I'm glad I'm I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I'm glad for I'm glad that that wasn't like because I I know the album you're talking about and I really enjoy it. Um, I'm glad that wasn't like at the top of my mind because that would have been like a really good choice for a play. Because um, there is there is like enough. You're right. There's enough of a foundation there that you could build something off of that for sure. Definitely, dude. What is yours? Uh, I'm going classic here, very classic. Um, I'm going with the dark side of the moon. Um, as as a, I mean, I guess you could refer to every single Pink Floyd album as a concept album. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, they're, they're working right. on a different level than everyone else, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but like this album in particular is, it's about, it is literally about the things that drive us insane. Um, I should say it's about the things that drive us insane, literally, literally and figuratively. Um, you know, it's about the pursuit of material wealth and the failure of emotion and empathy and how like focusing on negative emotions really leads to like a terrible life and how the culmination of like pursuing certain things really like can break apart society and just leave you with like a very empty, unfulfilled life. And 
you know, obviously, it, it, obviously, that's with Pink Floyd. It's 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 not even as much about the lyrics as it is about what is like what you're hearing, and sometimes mm-hmm. what you're not hearing. And so I feel like you'd have to write like a pretty, you'd have to write like a pretty hearty narrative for this play. But I feel like each song could serve as a bridge from scene to scene. Like just you know, like mm-hmm. the, there would be some dialogue between you know, the protagonist and whomever else is is in a particular scene. And then what this song would lead us into like a really like psychedelic trip from, you know, through greed and lust into insanity, into ruin, into emptiness, you know, from scene to scene, each each song serving as a bridge and serving as like a, you know, serving as, um, I guess, the, 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 the means of which we're going to be transported from beginning to end of this play. Of course, dude. And the fact that the last song is called Brain Damage, yeah. leaving you that feeling of emptiness and nothingness is just even more like it. It's so in line with what the theme of the album is and what you would be doing with the theme of the play and everything. And you're right, each song for the nine songs that there are on that album, they all seem to tell some type of different story and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, dude. And I will tell you, man, like for everybody out there, this might be one of the most controversial things that I could say about that album, but the great gig in the sky is the best fucking song on that album. The song where it's just the the woman singing and stuff. I fucking love that. It took me me a while dude, because like growing up and stuff like that, you're obviously like fans of time and money. And Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit later on, you like brain damage a lot. Um, Yeah. Brain damage, damage is yep. the second to eclipse is the last eclipse one. The the last one. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, you get to brain damage a little bit later on and stuff. But I'm telling you, as an adult, the great gig in the sky is just fucking god. That gets me every time, dude. <clears throat> Pink Pink Floyd is one of those bands that, as I get older, I appreciate them significantly more every year. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like for me, like now that I'm older and stuff, like if I'm going for Floyd. I'm usually going for animals or even maybe some of the more like obscure stuff like the earlier, like um, Sid Barrett days and Mm -hmm. everything. And it's weird. Like you could almost track like one's maturity in life through how they listen to (laughs) through what they're listening to Pink Floyd. Yeah. Are you listening to just, you know, if you're listening to it in the background while you get stoned, you're probably 19. And if like you're casually listening to it in your car while you're driving and thinking about like, what do you have to do in life? You're probably like 35 or 40. Yep. It's it's very interesting how 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 Pink Floyd is, has how differently they feel to me now that I'm older. Yeah, I know, man. It's it's really crazy. I have a completely different perception of them um, musically and stuff like that than I did when I was a kid. And when you are like growing up and stuff, it's just basically Dark Side and the Wall and the song mm-hmm. Wish You Were Here. Mm-hmm. But when you get older and stuff, and you really start to dabble into some of the things that like didn't necessarily make the radio or even animals, where Dogs is like a second, sixteen minute song is track number two. Mm-hmm. It's just like I don't know. It's one of these bands that I'm I'm very disappointed that you know, Pink Floyd never really, you know, as touring together and stuff like that, they just haven't like, it just never really materialized. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also kind of one of these cool things that I almost don't even know if I want to experience live at this point in time. Cause it mainly would be a completely different thing from what oh, they were sure. in the seventies and stuff. Yeah. But it, it's also just one of these kind of like, um, like one of these things kind of just like looming over me as like a music fan that I have dug a band as much as I have as Pink Floyd for as long as I have. And I've never really made the connection of seeing Pink Floyd live. I've seen Roger Waters live. It's phenomenal, but it's just not the same, you know? Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, how about, uh, how about a comic book? This was, this was kind of tough, but kind of fun. Okay. So this one, 
this is probably my most generic of all the of all the answers that we give. And if anybody has heard this song, I'd be very surprised. But Neil Young's opening song off of his um, his album Harvest Moon, which came out in like 1991, 1992, mm-hmm. uh, is a song called Unknown Legend. And basically, the song is about a um, a woman who was a waitress who just basically said fuck it and spent two years living on the road, having adventures and everything. And um, the song she's supposedly like telling her kids, you know, like about her life and everything like that. Like she's the narrator of the song. And while they don't really get into the whole specifics and believe me, like Yoshimi in reality might end up making for a better comic book, just knowing the science fiction genre. But there's just something about this woman telling these kids these like stories of her basically being a nomad, spending time on a bike. And I could see all these cool drawings of like a motorcycle and like the desert images and stuff that I think would work really well in a comic. So that would be my, uh, my comic choice. And I made this mainly because the best, one of the best possible examples that I could have thought of has already been turned into a comic book and it is Ghostface Killers, 12 reasons to die volume one and two. There are two comic books from these albums. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, about Tony Stark dying and getting pressed into vinyl records and his ghosts haunting the people that killed him. Like, it's great. I'll never be able to touch that, but I do think this Neil Young song is really good and would be a great comic book. Interesting choice. I like it. I, I dig it. I went kind of obvious, too. I went, I went in the classic rock, um, went back in the classic, or stuck in the classic rock genre, I guess, here. Um, and this one, it helps because this one is, is has, it is a story. This is like, this is kind of an old school um, kind of an old school like call and response type. We're not call and response type song, but like an old school uh, folk song that that is telling a story. And it's the Battle of Evermore by Led Zeppelin. Um, mm. a straight homage to as actually as a lot of their shit is a straight homage to Tolkien and uh, and fantasy novels in general. But uh, when they were when Led Zeppelin was at their height, that was sort of like the first wave of like Tolkien, um, you know, phenomenon popularity. You know, and right. obviously it comes back again in the ni- late '90s, early 2000s. Um, but like the, at their at their height, Tolkien was like re- was having this huge renaissance and popularity, and uh, they were smoking a ton of dope and doing other drugs. And Tolkien was just the shit that they were reading at that time. So it, it works their way into a lot of music, a lot of their music. Um, but uh, in in particular, I mean, this Battle of Evermore, it's pretty straightforward. It tells the story of an epic Lord of the Rings style battle. Um, I I have this like visual. I have this visual in mind. There's a there's a really famous painting. I'm going to send it to you right now. It's called Scotland Forever. Um, it's a painting of the Battle of... It's oil painting of the Battle of Waterloo um, with this charge by... I can't remember the name of the infantry unit, but like the Scots Greys, I think. Yeah, the Royal Scots Greys. Um, okay. I just sent it to you in our, in our chat here. Um, I like imagine it kind of looking like this. Oh, yeah. This kind of motif. Yeah, but yep. with here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. There's a supplement here, but I'm, I'm imagining this particular color palette, like these bright fucking glaring neons, in place of like sort of the more muted, more muted tones against like a black background. Yeah, dude, I'm totally picking up that. I see, I got the painting and everything like that. I'm checking that out and stuff. And yeah, I could, I could see that for sure with the neons and everything. You bet, especially just kind of. Falling into like some of Led Zeppelin's more like psychedelic, psychedelic stuff, stuff and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, you bet. Like, yeah, it's amazing. Like that actually could be a really good Led Zeppelin album cover too, if uh, if it was actually grayer, grayer for some reason. Right, but, exactly. Yeah, but no, I just really I just thought uh, cool. it's a, it's a it, 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 that was an easy one. I mean, you get a whole story if you like read through the lyrics. It's like a 
it's a whole it's a whole fucking story about the, how this battle starts and ends um and you know just again leads up and loves loves uh tolkien so why not have a lord of the Rings style this is definitely be like a one-off comic book this would be like a single issue of something uh and that, yeah. that would be it but it definitely would be a fun one no i like it dude i really like it led zeppelin's got a lot of cool stuff and like with the imagery and everything and this song being such an epic song that is is i could yeah it's totally gonna work as a comic you're right this would be the one-off thing that like jimmy page's family you know somehow gave the rights to yep. like a, a cool comic book artist of our generation or something maybe like a tom king or some mm-hmm. shit and uh and he has himself some fun with it i could take it absolutely all right let's move on to here this the, our, our last like big question here i don't think it'll be that that big but just sort of a, a what if scenario like your favorite entertainment pop culture what if scenario there are literally no other rules to this so chama what is your big what if scenario Okay, so right now, and believe me, there's a million what-ifs, but the one that is on my mind right now at this moment is what if the Zack Snyder Justice League is unfucking believable Like, <laughs> I, so, now, granted, like, this is the the fanboy here. I'm buying in this. This is the mm-hmm. easily the atom asteroids colliding with Earth articles that I'm succumbing to and everything. This is just because... The Justice League that we saw with Joss Whedon and everything is definitely a Franken movie. Okay, like nothing is going to save that movie and stuff. Like this whole, the tragedy that happened with Zack Snyder and the loss of right. his kid and right. like not being able to finish it. The, the project was just cursed from day one. I'm not mad at Warner Brothers like for for releasing this movie. Like there's a lot of like DC fans out there that just hate it and hate it and hate it. Now I, I can acknowledge that the movie is not necessarily that great. But the circumstances that leading up to the release of this movie and everything are just beyond what happens in a normal production. Now, ever since Joss has got such bad reviews, got such bad reception, whatever, lost a bunch of money, there really has been this cloud about, like, what is this Zack Snyder Justice League, okay? And on paper, they have given us a lot of really, really great reasons for fans to dig this movie like dark side is in it you get mm. to see superman in the black suit um the flash's girlfriend is in this iris west makes a makes a cameo and stuff in the movie um it's supposedly a whole different movie than what joss put in it's not just like the suicide squad director's cut or bvs director's yeah. cut where yeah. there's like 10 or 20 minutes of additional footage we're talking a completely different movie now the reason that this leads me to be with the big the what if thing I read this article a long time ago, or like, well, not a long time ago, like four years ago when BVS came out that was arguing that Batman versus Superman is going to age very, very well. Okay. Now, not necessarily the case just yet, but there is something about Batman versus Superman and there's something about Zack Snyder's handling of this franchise that I'm willing to say it's kind of going into our next question a little bit. That's kind of like ahead of its time. Okay. It's not a lot. It's just a little bit, but there's something in there that's definitely making these superhero movies as like films and statements and all that kind of stuff. I just feel that some of the directions and choices that they made in BVS were not necessarily the right ones. So part of me is really holding on to maybe audiences intelligence have they've had a couple years to get smarter it's been a couple years to like see superhero movies it's a couple years to complain about superhero movies to complain how they're all the same blah 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 and if this movie could be something 
very, very good. You know, this could be the movie that would not have been liked a couple years ago because it was too ahead of its time. But now that audiences have caught up, this might be something that actually hits with people like outside of just the DC people. And this could be a really, this could be a great statement. This could be awesome. This could movie could fucking suck ass even worse than the Joss Whedon one. It could be worse than BVS. I have no idea, but there's a big unknown factor right now that is just killing me. And this whole 2021 thing on HBO max just couldn't come fast enough. Oh, they, they are banking on that unknown factor. They yeah, are absolutely I, banking on that unknown factor to, to drive people to it. I, 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 I'm like you. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm interested. I, I will end up seeing it. But like, I there are pe- there's a lot of people when like this was first announced. There is a lot of people I saw it like on my Facebook feed and all, all my social media feeds. They're like they're like see, I knew it all along. I'm like, no, this isn't no. something that existed. He has to go fucking shoot this. Like, right, he's still got to, yeah, oh, Henry like, Cable's has, working out, like, for sure. Yeah, like... Sorry to cut you off, sorry. No, no, yeah, it's it just, I'm like, I'm like, you know, this, it, what kind of aggravates me about it is, like, <laughs> what aggravates me about it is, like, we're now serving the wrong people, we're not giving the wrong people what they want. Like, that, right. that it happened with, I still have yet to see The Rise of Skywalker, because I, like, I know that that movie gave the wrong people what they want. Yep, and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm again. I'm still going to see this, but I'm terrified this movie is going to give the wrong people what they want. Yeah, you know, I can understand where you're coming from on that, and like, I'm kind of worried that. The, so, if it took fans complaining, if it took petitioning, if it took online uproar or whatever to actually get this in motion. I'm worried that they might cater to some of the things that these people say. Exactly. You know, that's that, what I'm saying. Like they, yeah. they're clearly reading in, in some capacity. They're clear, not necessarily Zack Snyder himself, but like whoever is in charge over there at Warner brothers, you know, who's whoever is the head of these projects at Warner brothers is reading the internet and they fucking yeah. shouldn't be. That's, that's exactly right. Yes. And I, I hope to God that that is not the case because there is a lot of stupid, stupid, stupid things on the internet that have gained a lot of traction as far as like what could happen in this movie and mm-hmm. fan theories that screened rant and all these other websites have picked up on yep. that just, it, it needs to be Zack Snyder's vision, his vision, his vision alone. We've seen what happens when the studio intervenes and like, if this movie is not going to be released in theaters and in all reality, like, they're sinking like an additional, I think like 30 million onto it or whatever. Somehow this movie is going to make money, whether it be people signing up for HBO max to watch it once, whatever it is, it's Mm going to make money in some way. And that's just kind of what they need to go. They need to let this unknown factor be the unknown factor. You know, I don't want any like leak plot details. If they just drop this movie out of nowhere after you and I are done with this podcast, I would, that would be fine with me. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, I don't want any, I don't even want a fucking trailer. You know what I'm saying? Just give <laughs> yeah. me the movie. I, what, at what point, at this point, like what would a trailer even accomplish? Cause you would literally be yeah. showing us footage that we haven't, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it would be like leaking stuff unintentionally. Yeah, exactly. Like, so take, for example, like um, they did have a trailer where, they did release a trailer. It's like 30 seconds long of Wonder Woman or Gal Gadot looking at a photo or painting of Darkseid and you get to see this clip of Darkseid. A lot of the other things that are different about this movie is like Steppenwolf, the villain looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the black suit Superman. So we don't need to like really see any of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? I don't right. want to have the movie spoiled for me in the trailer the same way the second trailer for Batman vs. Super, the non-Comic-Con second Batman vs. Superman trailer did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Chema, I am oddly enough with you in a, in a comic book movie scenario here. What if scenario? And it really is this, this one has a lot of ramifications that like that. Um, well, I'll just get into it. What if Iron Man bombed in 2008? <laughs> I, I think this sets up four very big questions. Um, and the first, the first of which I'll, I'll sort of like go from, you know, smallest to biggest here, if you will. Um, the first of which is like, what does Robert Downey Jr.'s career path look like if it's not taken up by literally a decade of playing Tony Stark? Um, from 2008 to 2019, besides playing Tony Stark, he only has like three major movie roles and like three cameos yep. in things. I mean, there's, there's yep. literally nothing else that he does for 11 years outside of being Tony Stark. Um, so what is what does that career look like? And does it look... Are we thinking of, of are we thinking of Tony or Tony Stark? Excuse me. Are we thinking of Robert Downey Jr. the same way? Because being Iron Man was really like the thing that helped rehabilitate his image from mm -hmm. from what we knew about him in the '80s and early '90s to now it has changed wildly. Um, you know, like this sort of lovable character. He was not this way in like 1991 at all. Right. Yeah, um, not at all. So without Iron Man, does he? Can he? You know, can he rehab his image? And be as mainstream as and friendly as like we think of Robert Downey Jr. now. Um, similarly, you know, going on the, the same path, like what about all these breakout stars that are associated with the, with the MCU? Um, does Chris Hemsworth really get the chance to be as big as he is without being Thor? Um, and, you know, and then obviously that leads to other movies and things. But I mean, if, if like he is Thor, like he at this point mm -hmm. should just wear yeah. the fucking costume around. Um, right. You know, like and obviously he was fairly big in Australia, but like. It took Thor for him to break over here. Um, yeah. Similarly, thinking about I'm just going to stay in that part of the world, would, would the United States of America get to see the brilliance of Ta uh, Taika Waititi if if it wasn't for his fantastic turn and uh, fantastic direction in Thor Ragnarok? Um, would Chris Pratt remain a small screen star? Obviously, he'd done movies and things before, but like he doesn't. Again, the MCU allowed him to become something more than what he was before. Um, and right. then we could go on. There's hundreds of these people that like um, Chadwick Boseman, um, you know, even even Brie Larson. Does Brie Larson cross over as a mainstream star or or would she become, you know, our next uh, Natasha Leone, which is nothing wrong with, with being Natasha Leone. But Brie Larson is inarguably a much bigger star than she is. Of course. Yeah, about, dude. Oh, sorry. Just real quickly here. Uh, how about. Are we advancing the racial discussion in superhero movies and TV shows without Black Panther? I, I, I don't think we are. Like, you know, there's, you know, that's like one of the big criticisms of, of superhero movies and comic books and things in general. They're very mm -hmm. white. Without Black Panther, do we get to that point where we're kind of, we don't care about that. I shouldn't say we don't care about that anymore. But we're making progress on that. Um, where like a black superhero is looked up to by white kids. Um, and the biggest question here, does the MCU even exist at all in any form? Dude, I'm telling you, that's a really, really great what if. And I got to say, like, going on down the line, Robert Downey Jr. does not have the kind of career renaissance that he has. If anything, Robert Downey Jr. would be a um, he'd probably just go back to being cameo guy. He would be like the, the party cameo guy, you know, like mm -hmm. the hangover or whatever. They go into somebody's room and guess who it is? It's Robert yep. Downey Jr. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, I definitely don't think that this would have paved the way for any of the breakout stars like Taika Waititi, like, you know, the cream always does rise to the top or whatever. Sure. So he maybe 
maybe would have gotten like Jojo would have probably came out or something like that, you know, and and Jojo's amazing. Um, The Hemsworth, no, they're not going to be as popular as Chris Hemsworth would probably be like what Scott Eastwood is now, where he's just like the good looking dude in the background or whatever, but there's no way in hell that he's like a leading guy, you know, not a chance. And we're definitely, we DC would have introduced African-American superheroes at some point in time, but it wouldn't be nowhere near as much of a um, uh, sociological discussion as what we've had through the Marvel movies. That is for fucking sure. And if anything, it would have definitely slowed the progress down of introducing a prominent African-American, not only superhero, but a prominent African-American director to direct that movie. Other. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, um, While people, you know, and I do, I know all these movies are formulaic and all this stuff, but, you know, we wouldn't have had, we definitely would not have had Chadwick Boseman at the level that Chaz, Chadwick Boseman is for sure mm-hmm. if there wasn't for Black Panther. Yeah. And even Michael B. Jordan, dude, Michael B. Jordan would, he would still be an actor in Hollywood, but I don't think that Michael B. Jordan would have the same kind of clout that he does now had he had not played Killmonger, without a doubt. No, no, absolutely not. And I, I really think that if, if that first movie bombs, um, cause this is, this is like before, this is before Disney was bulletproof. I'm <laughs> like, this is well before. Right. And even like, right. even as, even, even as late as 2012, um, we've, we've mentioned this before, uh, that John Carter movie was supposed to be at least a three picture deal. I think it was more than that is what they were planning. They're planning on more like four or five of these fucking things. And right. that one bombed so badly. They yanked the cord on any, dis- like, I'm sure if you walked into Disney Studios and like accidentally mentioned the name John Carter, they would have fucking pushed you out a window. Um, yep. it, it was like it was that bad. And had had Iron Man just been a complete fucking flop, I bet it would have gotten the same treatment. They're like, nope, we're shelving yep. any future Iron Man projects. Let's let's take the Hulk off the shelf. Let's take Thor off the shelf. Let's not even fucking worry about this. Yeah. You'd be hearing about like Fox trying to buy Marvel from Disney instead of Disney trying right. to buy Fox. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, you're, you're you're definitely right on that, dude. Like they would have, if the first Iron Man would have bombed, they would have like just put a complete stop to anything. There would have been no other MCU's. You know, you would. Have, so we would have never had like the Chaz McBosemans of the world. We would have never had any like anything in the uh, John Carter and all that stuff. Like. Being so bad, Marvel would have shelved everything. They would not be buying Fox. Like, right now, Fox would be trying to buy Marvel characters from them. Like, it, that's how it would be, dude. Like, there would be no MCU. It, it, it really is. Like, and I've, I've mentioned this before many times on the show, many times to you. I'm not, like, I'm not, like, in love with these movies the same way a lot of people are. Just superhero movies in general just don't, they don't hit me the same way. Not that there aren't good ones. There are some, believe me, MCU has some great fucking movies in there. Um, but they're, you know, and like the dark Knight, the dark Knight ride, like I'd love those movies, but they're movies before they're superhero movies, if that makes sense. Um, exactly. But there is so much like this particular franchise, this bizarrely enormously expansive franchise has introduced us to so many new talents, um, be it on the direction side, the writing side, obviously the acting side. Um, it's introduced a whole new generation uh, to comic books in general that probably never would have gotten into them anyway. This thing is really like, whether or not you like them or not, this is this is a cultural touchstone for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, without a doubt, dude. This whole thing that they did with the MCU, we've never seen anything like it before. I don't know if we'll ever really see anything like it again that's been executed as flawlessly as it has until the next MCU anyway. But uh, yeah, this was a 
a milestone of cinematic achievement and, and pop culture, like pop culture yeah. significance for, for sure. sure. Yeah. All right. So we are getting out of here now. Um, this was a, this is a really excellent discussion, really excellent ex- extended thought, ex- uh, thought exercise, if you will. But uh, before we go, I just have a couple of quick hitters for you that I couldn't really, I didn't really think were worthy of like a whole category or anything. So, you know, just a quick hitter here. Um, uh, who is, you kind of touched on a little bit, but like, who do you think was ahead of their time in their respective field? Okay, so for this answer, I have Stanley Kubrick. Dude, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick was a fucking genius. I, yep. Randomly, no idea why I did it. I watched all of 2001, A Space Odyssey, nice. last Sunday. <laughs> totally just randomly Took watched up your day, that movie. Huh? Yeah, oh, the whole day. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and um, I, I notice how sometimes, like, when we say the phrase, like, uh, ahead of their time, there are certain connotations of, like, misunderstanding or maybe even failure or something. Like, somebody mm-hmm. didn't get something because they were ahead of their time. Stanley Kubrick is one of these dudes who is not only ahead of his time, but he was just immensely successful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like on top of his um, filming techniques, like, you know, like in, in Barry Lydon, there's this famous scene that's all done by candlelight and they had to use these lenses from NASA and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was just a, an innovative filmmaker in many, many ways. But like just the way he tells stories, the way that it's shot, even devoting 28 minutes dude 28 fucking minutes of no talking and apes and monoliths in a fucking desert in the beginning of a science fiction space travel movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is just that's just balls i mean that's just genius and balls like that we've never seen before so stanley kubrick um one of these people that is just he's still ahead of his time the guy's dead and he's still ahead of his time it's amazing yeah he stanley kubrick comes to mind in terms of directors um, as, as being like, it feels like he should be directing movies now, contemporary yeah. with like, with, you know, like it, it feels like he was making Christopher Nolan movies before Christopher Nolan. Um, in, in some regards, uh, it's just, he's amazing. Say, and I, I always think of the same way. I always think of the same thing with Brian De Palma that like his, his movies feel like they should have been released in the mid two thousands mid, like, it, yeah. like between 2005 and 2015. That's <laughs> when it feels like Scarface should have come out. You ever seen the Phantom of the Paradise, the movie that he did? Like, I think it was either right before Scarface or it was in between Scarface and something else. No, and I have not, but it, good. It's a glam rock Phantom of the Opera, dude. This movie should have came out five years ago, without <laughs> yeah, exactly. a doubt. And it, it, it's, it's old, dude. It's like from the 70s. Yeah, <laughs> yep. De Palma's, yeah, there's a lot of guys, a lot of people like that. We won't get too far into it. I, I have one that's sports related here, and I think you'll agree with me. Uh, Mark Price was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. Oh yeah, um, he just happened to play at a time where coaches and for a particular, a couple of particular coaches between Lenny Wilkins and Mike Fratello, they didn't want, um, you know, thirty-five threes a game going up. They didn't want three threes a game being shot for that matter. But mm-hmm. Mark Price was he again? He was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. The same smoothness and he, the way he always tells it too, it's really funny. Like he would have, he's like, I would have loved to take twenty threes a game. Are you kidding me? I, I would have loved to stood out there and just shot the lights out because because I would have fucking scored thirty points a game. It, it would have mm-hmm. been over. And I, I agree. Mark Price was a was that type of point guard before Steph Curry came along. Dude, him and his ninety-one percent free throw shooters and stuff. Mm-hmm. That guy was a goddamn lights-out assassin, man. You can't go wrong with Mark Price. He's, he's got you. Got to check out his like highlights <laughs> on YouTube. That dude was smooth. He was smooth with the ball. He he really does remind me of Steph Curry. Where did he go to college? I believe he was Georgia Tech. Okay, gotcha. Okay, I was is, I couldn't remember if it was somewhere in the north or whatever. No, but he's, yeah, cause I think he because I feel like he ended up coaching there at one point in time before he's like he's been an NBA coach too. But I feel like he coached there for a while. Like he was the head coach there for a while. 
dude, that's all. Yeah, that's awesome. Mark Price, like just a class act all around, like one of like just a favorite prominent athlete of basketball in that era yep. and stuff like that. The, the guy was the man. Yep, absolutely. He's awesome. Uh, what weird mashup of two TV shows would you watch? And I asked this question because like, I felt like, I felt like putting a whole section of mashups would be kind of, I don't know, derivative. Like there's like just yeah. too much similarity, but just real quickly here, like if you were to give me like your weirdest mashup of two TV shows that you thought you would find intriguing. Okay. I went with, cause they're both on Netflix. They could easily do this same studio, mm-hmm. the umbrella Academy and atypical. And I had this kind of vision in my mind where where Sam from Atypical joins the Umbrella Academy. Like he's the one piece that they're missing. Like they really don't have a a brainy character. Like five has got experience just because like five is technically a really, really old guy and stuff. But um, it would just be something they got the smart, funny kind of nerdy kid who's got no powers whatsoever. And he's like maybe the guy in the control room or something. But since he's autistic, he's got like a super clean control room or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of Mm -hmm. playing into that character. And uh, I don't know. I could also see Michael Rappaport, like just maybe like bringing Sam his lunch to the Umbrella Academy and doing like stupid Michael Rappaporty stuff like, oh, yeah, look at this. Look at this nice door you got going on here. I remember having a door like that, you know, just whatever it is. But those would be my two shows, two shows on Netflix that I think could actually be merged together. That's pretty hysterical, actually. Um, I, I'm going with um, I'm going actually going with two CBS properties. Oddly enough, uh, I, I didn't wasn't on per, I didn't I wasn't trying to follow the same format or thing. It just happens to work out this way. But um, I want I want to see a mashup of NCIS and Star Trek. Go ahead and take your pick of which Star Trek franchise does it matter. I'm going to call this uh, Starfleet Criminal Detective Agency, the SCDA. And it's a team of it's a team of Starfleet officers investigating the criminal acts of their ranks. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. If there's anything that space needs, it is the crime detective show. You know what I'm saying? Like that is definitely. They could be solving murders on the Enterprise. Like, exactly. The whole season is one giant whodunit and stuff, where you're trying to figure out who committed all these murders or whatever, and it turns out it's Picard or, or uh, <laughs> right. Kirk or whatever. Fucking, fucking but, Picard's just—he's lost it finally, and just finally snaps and uh, stabs Riker to death. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. all that, that glorious, charming disposition of Patrick Stewart is no more, and Picard's a conflicted serial killer. I can yep. totally get behind that, dude. Yeah, and that's the one thing I could, I'm pretty confident, dude, that there are no, like, episodic let's solve mysteries in space kind of shows. Like, I'm pretty positive on that. Probably not. No, probably not. All right. I don't have anything else, Chema. Um, <clears throat> any, any final thoughts here as we close up? Just another fun episode. This is a great little thought experiment. Something different, you know, yeah. different in a good way. This worked out really nicely. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. Um, I think this was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull as many clips as I can from this because I have, like, an additional fun idea for it. Um, because, okay. like, you, you kind of mentioned, like, you could visualize, like, a movie poster. Like, we could, like, essentially make movie posters and shit for this, you know, for this, like, for this. Like, just thinking mm-hmm. about, like, the movies that we want to make, the TV shows we want to make. There's like a whole visual medium part that could, that would be really funny to see. Oh fuck yeah, dude! Definitely. Anyway, anyway, you wanna you wanna lead us out of here? I will gladly do that, dude. So, <clears throat> this is Adam Chemelewski and Matthew Pagel for the Occasionalist. Everybody, you can go out and find us on Facebook, uh, Podbean, uh, Spotify. Do we get Spotify fixed? I, have, yet, I still have to go ahead and hear back from oh, them when okay. I feel like verifying yeah. the feed. So. Dude, I've been trying to find. There have been some episodes on Spotify with podcasting. That's so they got a little bit of work to do in their podcasting yes, department. But you can definitely find us on Instagram and all the social media platforms. Adam Chimalewski, Matthew Pagel for the Occasionalists, wishing you the best, and we will see you next time. Thank you.